Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 20th. I'm in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. As always today, the headlines are dominated by one kind of disruption or another. Our old friend Jeff Bezos today launched into space, uh, according to the New York Times, reigniting his rocket company's uh, uh, ambitions. Uh, Bezos is not only a disruptor of space, but of course of business, along with Zuckerberg and the Google boys and Apple. Um, the theme of disruption has in many ways, dominated our show recently. We had David Potter, the um, historian of antiquity, uh, on talking uh, recently uh, about um, his new book, Disruption, Why Things Change. Um, we had Joseph Henrik on the show, another kind of eclectic historian talking about how Protestantism unintentionally spread uh, capitalism. His book, The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous has been a bestseller, very influential in terms of distinguishing how we in the West turned out to be so disruptive and why we are as we are. Today, we have another really interesting book, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance and the 40 Years That Shook the World. 1490 to 1530, uh, written uh, by, um, I'm not sure if we would call him a professional historian, a professional podcaster, broadcaster uh, based in Phoenix, Arizona. And I've been reading this book last night and this morning. It's really good, really accessible, beautifully written, extremely well researched. And as all good history books, as relevant today um, as, uh, as any history book can be about our age of disruption. Um, Patrick, are we living in equivalently disruptive times today in July 2021 as the period you were writing about in The Verge, this 50-year period in the, uh, the end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century? I do think we are. For the reason that not all historical periods are created equal in terms of the amount of disruption they contain. And political scientists, sociologists, uh, economists have a very specific kind of term that they use to describe a period like this. They call it a critical juncture. And it's a period in which the institutional and structural foundations of the world are kind of up for grabs, in which a great deal of change is possible in fairly restricted periods of time when a whole kind of social order, political order, can be transformed quite rapidly. I mean, we're, we're used to thinking of these things as revolutions. I mean, and, but revolutions are just a manifestation of a critical juncture. Um, they're one aspect of it. And I think especially over the last 10 years or so in the aftermath of the Great Recession, that we're certainly living through one of those periods where it seems fairly clear that we're doing a new thing, but nobody is quite aware of what that thing actually is. And um, and, that, that, and that's the nature of history. Again, I don't need to lecture mm -hmm. you on history, uh, Patrick, but um, as Hegel reminded us, uh, things only become clear at the end. Uh, mm -hmm. No one ever understands what we're going through until we've gone through it. 
So the yeah, hour I mean, of Minerva only, only uh, not crows, but I don't know what owls do. Will they sing, cluck at, uh, uh, at dusk? What, 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 what was Hegel's quote on, on the owl of Minerva? I'm sure you know. Yeah, I, I, I know the quote, but I don't know, but I cannot remember the exact verb. Um, I mean, so it, I, Hegel's exactly right about that. The, and if the past several years especially have felt kind of bewildering to live through, I think that is a pretty good summation of what it's like to live through an age of disruption. The, and the, it's, a, it's the, a great age. I mean, not, nothing feels better than disruption, does it, Patrick? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's, it's... to grasp it very well in The Verge. It's a, it's a really excellent book. And, and I thought of you this morning when I was looking at these headlines of Bezos launching into space, because the first chapter of your book is about Christopher Columbus, another explorer like Bezos, although... Unlike Bezos, Columbus had to raise money. Um, is there an equivalent between the Bezos-Musk obsession with space and Columbus and Vasco da Gama and the other explorers discovering the so-called new world uh, in the period you write about? Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think the greatest parallel lies in the kinds of financing arrangements that are going into them, that um, the these are, at the end of the day, profit-driven ventures. The voyages of exploration and the Bezos, Elon Musk space ventures as well, they are, these are commercial things. They're not NASA. They're out there eventually trying to turn a profit for the people who own them and for their shareholders. And that's what voyages of exploration were. They were not humanitarian things that were intended to you know, make the world a better place. They had investors that needed to be paid off, that wanted to be paid off, and they were willing to do pretty much whatever it took to make sure that um, these voyages were in the black. And uh, in your chapter, you stress the fact that, as you say, these were not charitable endeavors. And all too often, Columbus, who you describe in both good and bad terms, was um, was was uh, uh, an enthusiast of the slave trade. That he saw that as one of the core ways of of of, of economically making his exploration viable. Yeah, and from the very beginning, and it's interesting with Columbus and and these other explorers that we're not talking about a representative sample of Western European society at the end of the 15th century. They are members of a very specific subculture that is raised in ways of doing maritime violence for profit, that that's just part of the deal. These are these are sophisticated commercial operators who are used to having to account to shareholders and investors. And so the way they go about doing that is through violence. This is an easy and natural transition for them. If you can't find the trade goods that you want, well, you can easily turn a person into a trade good. Columbus especially came from Genoa, which was one of the centers of the late medieval slave trade. There weren't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of slave trading in late medieval Europe, except for these very specific places. And these I'm were the curious, places that I, happened I didn't to turn get this out from the, the early explorers. Um, Patrick, I didn't get this from the book, and, and I don't want to turn this into a, a show about slavery. We've had a lot of shows on that. But um, where were these slaves sold um, pre-discovery of America? When, 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 when Columbus um, uh, began the slave trade, I'm not that he was beginning the slave trade, but who, who was buying and wh where, were the, where were the slaves sold? Was it into the Islamic world? Was it into Europe? 
Um, so it was it was starting to be mostly into the Iberian Peninsula. The Iberian Peninsula was the new center of the slave trade at the beginning of the 16th century, late 15th, early 16th century, primarily because of Portuguese voyages to West Africa. So um, a significant percentage of the population of Lisbon by the beginning of the 16th century was of African descent. Um, this this was a slave trade that had been going on for more than half a century. By so that point Portuguese in time, Portuguese were buying so that, so white Portuguese people. Christian Portuguese mm -hmm. were buying mostly what black slaves um, uh, stolen yeah. from Africa. Yeah, I, so initially, initially they were doing some purchasing from Muslim middlemen along the coast of the uh, along the coast of the Sahara, um, but eventually they were they were you know going straight to the source. They were they were buying at the great river mouths in West Africa, so the Senegal, the Gambia, those those rivers. That's an astonishing story. Uh, um, when I was reading your your chapter on Columbus, which was really excellent, um, as I said, I thought of Bezos. We had uh, Brad Stone on the show recently, the the great chronicler of Jess Bezos. He has a new book out, Amazon Unbound. And one of the things that made me think of Bezos in your Columbus chapter was how commercially minded um, Columbus was and how eclectic he is, just as Bezos is eclectic in his ability to be both a capitalist and a technologist, uh, um, an explorer, um, an innovator. So Columbus collected all these different skills of navigation, of bravery, of the ability to raise money. He was a, a, an unusual character, wasn't he, Christopher Columbus? <laughs> Yeah, it, there there are ways in which Columbus was un, was unusual in the combination of those skills. In most ways, he was deeply ordinary. Um, you could, and I think in the grand scheme of things, you could replace Columbus with pretty much any other captain off the deck of a ship in in Lisbon or or Seville at this point in time, and you would end up with much the same kind of historical outcome. Like I don't think he's a pivotal figure in the way that Martin Luther is, but he but he's interesting in kind of the breadth of things that he was that he was into, and that's also kind of a product of the world that he lived in where there was a lot of information going around. There were books available. Columbus wasn't an especially critical reader and certainly wasn't aware of what he didn't know. Um, but that stuff was available. All of the books that he owned were printed books. So he's very much a product of this uh, this world that's already in motion at the time. Well, we'll, we'll come to information and Luther and books uh, later in this conversation. What I think distinguished Columbus from Bezos was he didn't have money and he had to go to this woman. Isabella of Spain, who looks very miserable in this portrait, although uh, from your excellent chapter on, on, on Isabella, she wasn't always miserable. And she was a remarkable political figure, both in the unification of Spain and in terms of funding Columbus's voyages. Why did you choose a chapter on Isabella for the book? So I thought that this is very much the period of the state building monarch. Um, and you can find these figures all across Western Europe. You have um, Henry, you have Henry VII in England. Uh, you have Louis XI in France. All of these kings who have a reputation for building what we think of as the state, the capital S state. Um, of all of them, I, I thought it was really striking that Isabella was the most skilled political operator and laid down the firmest structural foundations for the following period for the polity that she ruled. So there's there's no Spain without Isabella. There's definitely no Spain as a superpower without Isabella personally. She was incredibly personally competent in a way that a lot of rulers of this period were not um, and didn't have to be. 
but she did have to be, and she was, and you can really see on a grand scale, the kinds of uh, her personal qualities winding their way into the story of Spanish state expansion. Why is it important? Uh, why, why is the expansion of the state so critical? Is that in political terms, um, the most important transformative event between the Middle Ages and modernity? So you can, that's a really good question. I mean, you can see the roots of state building in the medieval period, but when we get into the early modern period, yes, there's what, what clearly happens is a change in scale. The states get bigger and their capacity rises. They can do so much more. And primarily what they want to do is make war. They don't want to provide social services. They don't want to build roads. They don't want to feed the, feed the poor. Uh, what they were, they, what they want to do is fight. Um, because that's what kings thought they were supposed to do. They thought they were supposed to make war. And so the early modern period is largely defined by this massive expansion of the state capacity to do this, to keep armies in the field, to make them bigger, to provide them with more expensive technologies, ships, cannons, things things like that. And eventually this culminates in the disasters of the Thirty Years' War and the really capable fiscal military states of the 18th century. Um, this is what eventually leads us to European global empires. The capacity to make war in this way begins in this period, and it begins with monarchs finding ways to pay for it, to kind of set that ball in motion. Um, and that's what Isabella does. That's what she does better than any other monarch of this period. But of course, to raise money, you need financiers. And another of your extremely good chapters is on Jacob Fugger, uh, Jacob the Rich, um, at that point, perhaps not only the richest man in the world, but the richest man in the history of the world. Um, was Fugger the founding capitalist um, banker of, uh, of the 16th century? Were his business methods different from previous generations of merchants and bankers? <laughs> What really changes with, with Fugger um, is scale. So the methods he uses are pretty much the same methods that his predecessors a in prior generations had been using. Um, in the, the Medici of the 15th century were probably more sophisticated in terms of the fiscal tools at their disposal, how they how they organized and ran their business than Fugger was. But what changed was the scale. It was just orders of magnitude greater, the ambition was greater. So I think even if there had been capitalists before, and I think you can pluck capitalists just about anywhere if you want to find one, I think figures like Fugger mark the shift to a society that is capitalist as opposed to one that has capitalists in it. The fact that people like Fugger accumulated the resources they did and then productively put those to use and in, in you know, productive being a, a relative term there, but, you know, in larger mining operations and shipbuilding and voyages of exploration and primarily in funding state building and gunpowder warfare. It's these are the profits that they're reinvesting in those activities. And so it just snowballs. It's like, a, I mean, it's a snowball rolling downhill, gathering momentum. And you can see that happen literally over the course of Fugger's life. Recently, we had the Wired uh, journalist, um, Gian Volpicelli on. Uh, he has a, a really interesting new book out on cryptocurrency, which is, of course, revolutionizing finance, money, capitalism, potentially. It doesn't seem to be an equivalent to cryptocurrency in the age of Fugger, was there? No. Huh? And there... One of the things that's really fascinating about this period is that cryptocurrency has the benefit or the, the, the characteristic of being tangible and limited in quantity, 
right? That's one of the things that makes it attractive to investors is if you have it, somebody else doesn't have it. Um, money in and it the needs period- to be mined, at least symbolically, just like silver was mined uh, in, uh, in the 16th century. Exactly. But the difference in the 16th century is that any single piece of currency that comes into circulation becomes the basis for a whole array of virtual transactions beyond that. So one little piece of silver can be sold, transferred many times. And as long as it exists in somebody's account book, it can become the basis for a future loan for credit. So it has a multiplier effect in a way that cryptocurrency doesn't. What, what, what people like about cryptocurrency is that it's limited. you know, um, And that's not the case with money in this period. We're used to thinking of, you know, chests of gold and silver and hard currency, but that's not really how people did business. They did business on the basis of notes of exchange, on the basis of transfers from one account to another that happened within the pages of an account book. Um, they were not dealing in finite, tangible currency all that often. I wonder if we were returning, though, in some ways with cryptocurrency to uh, the period before you describe. Uh, I was struck by the multiplicity of currencies of ways of doing business, of, of coinage, of, 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 of money, essentially, in, in the period before, um, before your 40-year transformation. And of course, with cryptocurrency, we're returning to that with Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other cryptocurrencies. Was there in this period a, a kind of a parallel development of a unified currency with the work of people like uh, Isabella in the creation of unified states? So the, the, the biggest thing is that the profusion of different currencies was not really a bar to doing business. So the people who were engaged in this kind of, were engaged in this kind of business where they had to be aware of how much money was worth, always had the exchange rates in their head. They always knew how much X currency was worth in, in, in Y currency. Um, and so it wasn't really a barrier for them. They were used to doing it. And in fact, they were able to use that to disguise interest. So they weren't supposed to be charging interest on loans because that would have been usury and usury was prohibited by the church. But by playing with those exchange rates, by having this profusion of different currencies, it actually allowed them to do business in productive ways. It allowed them to use a lot of the tools that we think of as kind of de rigueur that would not have been available otherwise, that would have been prohibited, would have gotten you yelled at by a Franciscan or a Dominican on the street, instead of just being able to make your loan and make a profit on it. Um, so the so you end up with not so much a unified currency, but a unified way of thinking about money. And the currencies are just the kind of the flotsam on top of the waves, if that makes sense. Everybody shares the same, the same currents underneath. Uh, yesterday, pa Patrick, um, I had Shira Frankel on the show. She has a new book out about Facebook and Ugly Truth, about how Facebook is radical, that the technology underpinning Facebook and its network is profoundly revolutionizing the nature of information. You have a chapter in your book on the Venetian publisher Aldous Minutius, which I found also particularly interesting. Uh, I knew about him, but I didn't know his as much as I should, and, and, your, and your chapter on him is excellent. He revolutionized the information business. It wasn't really Gutenberg, was it? It was Minutius and other publishers, uh, in, 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 in particularly in, in Venice. Is that fair? 
Yeah, so one of the, there are a lot of fascinating things about printing. I spent a lot of time talking about it, but one of the basic facets of it is that Gutenberg goes out of business very quickly because Gutenberg was a poor businessman and printing was really hard to make work as a business. So the so the technology was was fairly straightforward, fairly well understood. It explodes in popularity right after uh, right because people understand the implications of it that all of a sudden, you know, you can print a lot more than you could copy by hand. But almost all the printers who are part of this first wave go bust because the type is expensive, because they uh, because they overestimate the number of buyers for their works, because they don't know how to get their works to the buyers, because if they get the books there, they can't get paid for them. Um, there's all of these barriers to making printing a viable business that have to uh, that, that have to fall before printing can become an actual revolutionary information technology. And I think that's where the biggest parallel is with the internet, with Facebook. It's not that hard. The basic architecture of the internet has been around for quite some time. Even the smartphone has now been around for almost 15 years. It's that it's taken a while to figure out how to make these things turn a profit, not and not just turn a profit, to make them exceptionally profitable. I think that's where the biggest parallel lies between printing and the internet. And when you get to people like Aldous Minutius, these are people who figured out over long and hard periods of trial and error how to make printing a viable business, how to carve out what we think of as a brand reputation and make that into a commercial asset. Patrick, would it be fair to say, though, that in some ways we're returning to the the pre-Aldous Minutius age with Facebook, because after all, what Facebook does is allow anyone to publish anything. There's no curation at all. That's both its strength and its weakness. It's what uh, Frankel and, and Kang call its ugly truth. The point about Minutius, which you bring out beautifully in your chapter, is he was a, a curator and the business was based on curation. You choose the wrong book, you, you translate it wrongly. Um, you publish it badly and the book fails. Um, so do you think that in a way with uh, the user-generated content of companies like Facebook, we're returning to uh, an age before The Verge? So I think we're actually moving a little bit past it and moving not to, not to jump ahead in our conversation here, but, but to the age of the Reformation. Because what powered the Reformation were these cheap, easily available uh, printed pamphlets. That's what made printing profitable for, for people beyond Aldous Minutius. Aldous Minutius was very good at what he did. You could print pamphlets and you didn't have to be all that good at it and they could sell as long as you had the right product. And that's where you get this, I think, this really direct parallel with amplifying bad information or amplifying inflammatory information. Um, that's the basis of what the Reformation really was. When we dig down into the meat of it, it was information becoming available to people, not necessarily good information, and certainly information that, that inflamed people and made them act in ways that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise. They're exposed to, to new currents and streams of information in a way that they hadn't been before. Well, I've been trying to hold off. You brought him up earlier, the star of your book in many ways, Martin Luther, mm -hmm. who epitomizes this remarkable 40 years in, in European history. Um, reading your chapter on Luther reminded me that he seems like in some ways the kind of prototypical angry young or middle-aged man on Facebook. Um, what is it about Luther that makes him so... Um, so representative of this revolutionary age. Patrick. So, 
There, there are a few aspects to Luther. The first is his existence in the first place. The fact that he was an educated person who had been sent to university. His father had worked in the mining industry. The mining industry was fin deeply financialized. It was a product of these underlying financial currents long before Martin Luther ever set pen to paper. To and write his me. father was a horror, as you mentioned in your chapter, his father was a horrible bully. I mean, he ran a... <laughs> It sounds like he ran a, an alehouse and he spent his time either breaking up fights or hurting people. Yeah, that was I mean, that was part of the business for him. He was a, he uh, being a miner in one of these hard scrabble towns meant having to fight with other miners over rights to a claim over, you know, you've loaned somebody tools or money and that you haven't gotten paid back. You always got to be ready to, to throw hands, as the kids say. And um, that's the world that Martin Luther grew up in. He just transferred that kind of ethos into the world of print. Martin, the, the whole Reformation moves forward because Martin Luther can't let a challenge go unanswered. It very much moves through the process of blast and counterblast. And so where Martin Luther has this in common with a Facebook poster, and he is the original poster, um, is that he could never just let somebody write a comment and not respond to it. And what printers figured out was that people would buy the things that Martin Luther wanted to say. If Martin Luther wanted to write about an, what he perceived to be an insult or a challenge, then printers could run off 10,000 copies of that and people would buy it and the printers would make a profit and Martin Luther would get the word out. That's what the Reformation was. It wasn't these you know, kind of grand theological statements. It was Martin Luther getting mad about what a Dominican wrote about him and feeling the need to respond to it. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Joe Henrich was on the show recently, Patrick, and I'm, I'm sure you know his work. I'm sure he's probably mm -hmm. been on your podcast. Um, he argues that the Reformation and Protestantism was rooted in changes in uh, how and when uh, priests could get married in the 11th, 10th and 11th century. But of course, the most famous analyst of the revolutionary quality of Protestantism was Martin um, was was Max Weber and his Protestant ethic. Where do you stand on 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 the Reformation and Luther and the origins of capitalism itself? So this is this is a really tough question to untangle, and I'm of several minds about it because, as I mentioned earlier, I think there were capitalists in Europe going back a long, long ways. Whether that made Europe a capitalist society or made or, or we could talk about its economic mode as being one of capitalism, I think are, are slightly are related, but but um, not quite the same thing. Um, what I think of the eventual development of Protestantism as a set of um, a, a set of ways of understanding the world and understanding religiosity does is it removes some barriers to doing business. So it makes it easier. It removes some friction. Um, if you don't have to worry about usury prohibitions at all, then all of a sudden it's easier to do business. If you can cast work in the market as being a moral positive, which some varieties of Protestantism do, then that removes a layer of friction. Um, because medieval Europe, it's not that it was impossible to do business, and some people grew very rich in there. As I mentioned, there were certainly capitalists, um, but there was a layer of disapproval of those activities. There was a, a slight sense of social sanction. You, the bankers worried that they were going to go to hell for having committed the sin of usury. Um, merchants worried about being too visibly wealthy. There were, these were real concerns and real worries, and eventually, 
as you get decades, centuries into a, a more Protestant Europe, these things kind of fall away a little bit. Patrick, the Europe that you described is bookended by Islam and your chapter on um, Catherine, you talk about the the so-called reconquest of southern Spain and of course the the great power at the time was the Ottoman Empire. You you one of the last two chapters on your book is on Suleiman the first. We we've had a number of shows on Islam. We had Mustafa Akyol, the Turkish scholar about the reopening of Muslim minds. To what extent at this period were the Muslim world and particularly the Ottoman Empire just infinitely superior in military, cultural, and political terms? Well, so the Ottoman Empire is much more like what we understand as a modern state at the beginning of the 16th century than any Western European state is. It has much more sophisticated fiscal mechanisms, much more sophisticated administration. It has much more like what we understand as a standing army than any Western European state does. The Sultan has much more of a monopoly on force in his lands than any Western European monarch did. Um, the state capacity of the Ottoman Empire was dramatically higher. When they decided they wanted to do something, the resources that they could put to that were dramatically greater than in any Western European state. Um, and frankly, the rulers were, as uh, on the whole, more competent because most of them had gone through a gauntlet of competition. They certainly um, had to, better to headwear than the... Um... <laughs> And the European rulers, right? <laughs> yeah, I would take that turban over a, over a kind of a beret thing any day if you were, Especially if you were giving me a choice. Especially compared to how miserable Catherine looked. Yeah, she she had she was dealing with some stomach issues when uh, when that portrait was when that portrait <laughs> of Isabella was was taken, I believe. Um, yeah, the the Ottomans are are the superpower of this period, and what's what's kind of hard for us to understand is that the Ottomans are much more of a European power at the beginning of the 16th century than they are one that's rooted in what we think of as the Middle East. Their base of power is Southeastern Europe. That's where the sultans want to campaign. That's where they want to expand territorially. Um, it's only through uh, the reign of Suleiman's father, a guy named Selim the Grim, had a great mustache, uh, that, uh, that the Ottomans conquered Syria and Egypt in Suleiman's reign, they take um, the North African coastline. So it's only then that they become a much more uh, a kind of a south and, and eastward focused power. They're, they're really focused on Europe, and that's what Western Europeans were worried about, was the Ottomans. And of course, the other great power of the age was the Chinese. You note that um, had one been guessing where the real global innovation would be coming at the beginning of the 15th century, you would have probably guessed China. We had... Uh, Kishore uh, Mabubani, the Singapore-based polemicist on the show, he's been someone who's been arguing for a while that uh, China is it has overtaken the United States. Um, fed him on the show a couple of times. Um, why, in your view, did none of this innovation happen in China? Firstly, I know this is a big historical question. And secondly... Um, with the rise of China today, are we again returning to uh, a pre-15th century world? So the, the question of China is really interesting and India as well. And so this gets at one of the major questions of the book, which is what scholars call the great divergence. At what point did Western Europe become the global hinge? When did it overtake um, every other region of the world in terms of economic output, political power? Um, why, were, why is that where global empires were based? And in terms of the actual shift 
I tend to put that fairly late. I think that, that that doesn't really happen until the second half of the 18th century, even into the 19th century. Um, but I think the roots of that are laid down much, much, much earlier. And I think that they're laid down in this specific period for reasons that mostly have to do with accidents, um, that have to do with accidents of birth and death, um, particular rulers coming to thrones at various points, the collision of these processes that all seem to happen kind of simultaneously, um, that, that become mutually reinforcing, like the rise of printing and gunpowder warfare. Um, and frankly, because Western Europe is something of a backwater, it's not that it's poor per se, but that Western Europeans don't have things that other people want around the world. Um, the, the thing that Western Europeans make at this point is cloth. And you know, if you make good woolen cloth, well, there's not a lot of, not a huge market for that in Alexandria, uh, or in Aleppo, or <laughs> or in Calicut. Um, so you, they, uh, Patrick, sort of standing back in terms of your theory as a historian, you're more in the Weberian school of history being defined by its unintended consequences. That that you, I, mm -hmm. I don't sniff a lot of Marxist theory or Marxist influence in your book about the role of capitalism. That was uh, Marx interfering in this conversation. Uh. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very much a materialist in the sense that I, I focus heavily on material forces. But you're not a teleological um, materialist. I'm not a teleological. No, uh, no, I'm not teleological. But, but what I've taken from reading Marxist scholars over the years is an emphasis on the, the ways of common life and the importance of thinking in terms of aggregate ways of doing things. So that that the the consumer habits of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, I think, matter a lot more than one guy deciding that he's going to send an army here. You know what I mean? Like, I think in the in the grand scheme of things, that matters a lot more. Um, that's what I've taken from from Marxist historians over the years, not and not so much the the kind of development from feudalism to capitalism to so on and so forth. I don't I don't put a lot of stock in that um, as an analytical tool, um, but certainly the emphasis on economic history and on and especially I I try to get at this at co common people that common people were are, are agents and uh, and also victims of the things that happened in this period. You sound a little bit like Martin Luther. Um, you <laughs> mentioned um, Patrick that Luther epitomizes this age. He was the great winner in symbolic, political, ideological terms. I think the great loser. You don't say this in your book, but the great loser was his mortal intellectual enemy, Thomas More. His More's great book, Utopia, was a, a kind of nostalgic take on what was being lost because a lot was being lost, just as the world mm -hmm. was being transformed, um, Reformation, re Renaissance, discovery of the new world. An old world was being destroyed. We had um, the New York Times, the brilliant New York Times uh, journalist, Timothy Egan, on the show recently. He had a book out, A Pilgrimage to Eternity, in which he walked from London to Rome as an attempt to sort of retread uh, the Middle Ages. What are you nostalgic for that got lost in this great transformation? Should we look back and in some ways be regretful as more was, particularly in Utopia, of what was being lost in this great transformation? 
So I, I think that's a really good question. And it's one that's always worth asking that, that progress, if that's what we think this is, carries a real price that people get hurt. You know, um, the I think the church gets a bad rap, but the church was a big tent like the capital C church. It had to be. It encompassed everything. You, you, you had a lot of diversity flying under that banner. And after what after Luther's interventions, that unity is forever broken and it can never come back. Um, and I don't think that it was a given that it was that it was going to be broken. I think that is a his, I think the Reformation is in a lot of ways a historical accident. Um, but the kind of intolerance that follows the witch hunts that follow literal witch hunts, um, that's a product of a much less trusting and um, institutionally stable age. Um, the you know the and again not not just the church but also the Middle Ages get kind of a bad rap. Um, some deserved for some deserved reasons and some not. The early modern period, the age that follows what I discuss in this book, is really the one that's full of violence, that's full of repression, that's full of religious intolerance, um, and in which common people suffer mightily um, for the for the birth of the the world that we understand to be modern. Um, that's mostly what I regret is that so many people were willing to pour money into these projects, that so many people were so ambitious uh, that that they did this without thinking of the consequences or being concerned about them. And when I think about parallels with the present day, that's what strikes me so much is, you know, the desire to get a beach house, the desire to, you know, be a billionaire going into space, that people get hurt for that. You know what I mean? Well, that's why we need you, Patrick. The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and the 40 Years That Shook the World is beautifully written, beautifully researched, but it's not at academic. How have you managed to do what you've done? You've got a PhD in history, but you are a, a self-employed historian. You have a best-selling podcast. You're on uh, Substack, and I, I just subscribed myself. Your podcast is called The Tides of History. Are you... Um, are you a model for a next generation self-employed historian working outside the the annoying uh, confines of the university? Um, I don't know if I can, if I'm a model because I've been incredibly lucky and I've happened to be in some right places at right times. Like and Martin so... Luther, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think I can I, I can't give myself too much credit for all of well, that. You're certainly I, I think... better looking than Luther. <laughs> Well, that's that's much appreciated. It's not um, hard I, though, right? Yeah, I don't think that's a high bar. Though young Luther had some nice cheekbones. He was a, he was a gaunt fellow. Um, the in terms of how I how I've been able to do this, I think um, I, it was clear to me I wasn't going to be an academic. I knew that that was I was not cut out for that because I didn't like being around academics and I didn't like doing academic work. Um, I kind of fell into doing more popular stuff because I was a sports journalist. As I was finishing my PhD, I had a second job covering mixed martial arts and boxing. And so I learned to do things like podcasting and writing articles for people who weren't, you know, PhDs. And that happened to translate really nicely for me. So I wish for current PhD students or other people who are in the academy and want to get out, that those are actual skills that are hard to develop and hard to learn. And I wish they were being taught systematically, as opposed to academia being the only kind of uh, the only end goal. For, for doing a PhD, because I liked my PhD. I learned a lot, I thought it was great, but um, you know, you gotta have more options out there. What advice would you give uh, people with a passion for history, um, perhaps with a PhD or graduate school experience in history or one of the other 
humanities? Who wants to make a career on Substack and podcasting? Uh, so I would say consistency is the biggest thing. That set a schedule and stick to it. If you're if you're going to do it, you need to have content that comes out every single week or twice a week or whatever schedule you decide on. You need to hit that like clockwork, um, and you need to organize yourself to do it. Um, and the best way to do that to ensure that you're putting stuff out consistently and that it's good is to choose things that you care about. Right to to have a passion for the subject that you're working on that interests you and that you're able to convey your passion and interest to your audience on a regular schedule. And I think people key into those two things. They like knowing that they can get a thing that they expect, and they like knowing that the person that they're reading or listening to cares about. Well, that certainly, Patrick, comes through in the book, um, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World, 1490 to 1530. I think it's going to be a bestseller. It's really good. Um, congratulations on the book. Um, what... Um, what other books, though? I know you're in Arizona at the moment, Patrick. What other books would you suggest people read um, to um, to complement yours, The Verge? What are your favorite books in our post-COVID age where we're still not entirely sure whether we're supposed to go out? Okay, well, let me pluck one down here. I got one for you. I got one for you right here. Um, this is a book written by a friend of mine, uh, Dan Jones. He's a, he's a historian. The Wars of the Roses. I think if you want to understand... Oh, I love this book. I love this book. Can you get him on the show? Can you introduce me to him? <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. He's great. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a buddy of mine. He helped me write my proposal for this book. He walks me through the process. Um, Dan, uh, so if you want to understand how a political system can fall apart and how individual incompetence can seep its way into the institutions and structures that make up a, a whole political unit, this is the perfect book to read. Um, and Dan is a wonderful storyteller. It's got a wonderful sense of flow to it. Um, and so you, I think you end up learning some pretty profound things about the nature of politics and the nature of human frailty and weakness and ambition at the same time as, as you're being told just a rocking story. That's, it's, this is the model book, I think, for, for good popular history. Well, I think your book, The Verge, is also a model book. <laughs> it's a my new model book. We're going to get you on this show more. Patrick, because not only are you an excellent historian and writer, but you're great to have on the show. Keep well, keep writing, keep thinking, keep podcasting, keep substacking, and congratulations on a wonderful... Uh, it's a first book, right? It is my first book, yeah. First book, congratulations. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a sensation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it.